Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly, and I am back today with another solved murder case. But before we dive into today's case, I just want to remind everyone to make sure that you're a part of our private Facebook group. You can find it by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. In there, we share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases we cover, but we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. We have had a ton of major things happening within the true crime community and myself and all of our group members, which might I add is 7.5 thousand of you crimeaholics in the group, which is amazing. But we've all been sharing links and discussing various cases. It's also a great spot for you as listeners to get the opportunity to chat with me directly. I try super hard to engage as much as I can with all the group members. I love the opportunity to talk with you guys who take the time out of your day to listen to me talk about these cases. Okay, so now that that is out of the way, let's get into the real reason why you're here. Today's episode is on the murder of Cody Johnson. Cody Lee Johnson was born on April 8, 1988 in San Jose, California to his parents David Clarence and Sherry Ann Johnson. Growing up, Cody lived with his mother Sherry and the two of them were extremely close and had an incredible bond. Sherry was an incredible mother and wanted to make sure that Cody was always taken care of and had the best possible life that he could have. Sherry decided to pick up and move herself and Cody from San Jose, California to a small tourist town called Kalispell in Montana. Kalispell is a city in northwest Montana and is tucked between the mountains of Glacier National Park and Flathead Lake. This is a huge tourist spot, but there was only actually about 23,000 people who lived there. Many people travel to Kalispell every year to visit Glacier National Park and to also take in the scenery and enjoy the outdoors. Kalispell is a place that is on my bucket list to visit because I have heard it's an incredible community. And again, this is the gateway to the beautiful and absolutely stunning Glacier National Park. Park. Cody and his mother moved to Kalispell in 2002, and right off the bat, Cody thrived there. The area just really fit for Cody. He loved being outdoors, he loved going out and shooting with friends, and he loved visiting Glacier National Park. And for those who aren't familiar with this national park, I highly suggest you Google it just to see the amazing pictures of the park itself, but it is nearly 1,600 square miles of wilderness area in Montana's Rocky Mountains. It is absolutely breathtakingly beautiful with clear waters. It's just amazing. And there is over 700 miles of hiking trails. There is also a lot of wildlife there as well, including mountain goats and grizzly bears and so much more. One thing that Cody really loved growing up and all throughout his life was cars. And as he got older, he began learning how to work and tinker on cars. And he loved to try and tune the cars to the best of their ability to make them faster for racing. Cody was extremely well-liked and always attracted people because he was just so kind, caring, and a charismatic person. He always made people feel welcomed into his inner circle, and he was just a jokester kind of guy because he loved making people happy and he loved making them laugh. Before his death, Cody was working at a communications company called Nomad, but he also did work on people's cars as kind of like a side hustle. He really enjoyed working at Nomad because he worked alongside his uncle and he made several friends there. So all around, everything in Cody's life was going very well for him. And he had this great job. He had hobbies that he was super passionate about. And he was always surrounded by friends and family who loved him. The only thing that Cody had desired was to finally find a woman he wanted to settle down with and begin that next chapter in his life. 
He had told all of his friends he was really hoping to find a nice church girl to get married to and to start a family with. But in October of 2011, at a church luncheon, Cody Johnson met Jordan Graham, and it seemed like the perfect match. Jordan was very different from Cody. She was several years younger than Cody and was known by everyone as that shy and quiet girl. She was very introverted, while Cody was a major extrovert, and they say that opposites attract. But when you got to know Jordan, she came out of her shell a little bit and she did have a fun and silly side to her, which Cody completely fell in love with. The two of them really bonded over their love for the outdoors and hiking and especially their trips through Glacier National Park. Jordan grew up in a very religious household and she was very involved in the church community and while in high school she worked within the nursery helping out on Sundays with the kids and she was described to be great with children. Jordan always knew that she wanted to settle down and start a family and she just overall really loved children. Cody loved that about Jordan because it seemed like everything she wanted was exactly what he wanted as well. So the two began dating and Jordan really liked Cody, but she also wanted to take things slower because she wasn't ready to fully commit and jump into a serious relationship. From the get-go, it was very apparent to all of their friends that Cody was very much more invested in Jordan than Jordan was into him. One thing that was a huge hang-up for Jordan with their relationship and why she somewhat kept Cody at bay was because she wanted someone more invested in the church. So Cody went ahead and became more invested in his faith. He had previously attended church and he was a believer, but because church was such a huge thing for Jordan, he wanted to get more involved. He began regularly attending her church and became more involved within its community. In November of 2011, the two officially became an item, and Cody was completely head over heels for this girl. He wanted to do anything he could to make her happy, and he completely doted on her. Whenever he had a free minute, he wanted to spend it with Jordan. Fairly early in their relationship, he felt that he found the one within Jordan, and he told his mom that he had intended to marry her. As their relationship progressed in the level of seriousness, Jordan made it very clear to Cody that she was going to wait until marriage to have sex, and Cody, of course, agreed to wait until marriage as well. Again, relationship is progressing nicely. The two were great together in the sense that they complemented each other. Cody was the vibrant, outgoing person in the relationship, and it helped seem to bring Jordan somewhat out of her shell. They seemed to get along great and just seemed overall like the perfect match. But one thing people continued to notice, even as the length of the relationship got longer, was the fact that Cody still seemed way more into Jordan than she was into him. Many people from their friend group would later recall that they weren't very affectionate and they never hugged, they never kissed or held hands around them or any of their other friends. And overall, it seemed like they were more friends than people who were supposed to be in love. And I think for myself and even their friends, this seemed like maybe it was just for religious reasons on Jordan's part for them not to be affectionate. I know that Jordan grew up in a way that she had a lot of expectations on how to act. And maybe that was something that was preached to her that PDA is frowned upon. But either way, it was odd enough for their friends to make a mental note of it. After a full year of dating, in December of 2012, Cody got down on one knee and proposed to Jordan, and she accepted. This took all of Jordan's friends by surprise because they just really felt like Jordan wasn't all that into Cody. She seemed happy, yes, but she didn't seem like a woman in love. Those closest to her noted that it also seemed like Jordan was the most excited about the actual wedding and planning it than she was the idea of actually being married to Cody. 
Cody and Jordan set their wedding date for June 29th, 2013, and she quickly got to work planning for their special day. She knew that she wanted her friend Kimberly Martinez to be by her side as her matron of honor. And the two worked closely with making all of the various plans for the perfect fairy tale wedding, and Cody also helped as much as he was allowed. One thing that was important to both Cody and Jordan that they wanted for their wedding was to have a song written for them to dance to. They found a woman named Elizabeth Shea, who was a songwriter, and they hired her to write a song for them. Elizabeth sat down several times with the couple and conducted interviews in hopes of finding things that she could incorporate into the song that reflected their relationship, which she did. She wrote about them hiking up to high peaks and being, you know, the person to be there when they fall. And it was just overall a really beautiful song. Jordan then sang and recorded this song to be played as their first dance as husband and wife. June 29th, 2013 rolls around and everything is set and ready in place for them to tie the knot. Jordan had picked out a beautiful dress, and Cody was fitted in his tux, looking handsome. And with every wedding day, there is, of course, those nervous jitters. But for Jordan, she was nervous about something much deeper. Jordan knew that once they were married, she was expected to sleep with her husband on their wedding night and consummate their marriage. This was something she told Cody she was waiting for marriage for, and given the fact that they had been together for a year and a half, he had patiently waited. Jordan felt doubts about this and whether she was actually ready to have sex with her husband. The wedding ceremony kicked off, and many of Cody's friends noticed that Jordan seemed awkward, and she didn't even seem to look Cody in the eyes. It almost appeared like she didn't even want to be there to begin with. From the pictures and videos of their wedding day I have seen, when Jordan and Cody are standing at the altar, she barely looks in Cody's direction. She's either looking down at the ground or she's looking over at the officiant. Jordan's friends just talk this up to her being nervous and stressed out. As I'm sure many of you guys might remember from your own wedding day or a friend's wedding day, it can be super stressful and nerve-wracking to have everyone's eyes on you. And the pressure to make sure you remembered everything and everything was going according to plan is just like very stressful. I know that on my day, I was a ball of nerves and completely forgot about these special chocolates that were custom made for our guest, so I can relate to Jordan if that was where her feelings were coming from on their wedding day. But as the reception began and they danced to their first song, it seemed like she relaxed a bit. In a video from their reception, you can see Cody and Jordan embraced and dancing. They're smiling, chatting while doing their first dance, and Cody even steals a quick kiss before Jordan turns her head. After all this, Cody was just so happy to finally have married who he thought was the girl of his dreams. He had told many of his friends that night that this was the best day of his life, and all of his buddies knew how much he was looking forward to finally getting to be intimate with his wife. That night after the wedding, Jordan and Cody went to a hotel for a mini honeymoon. The following day, the two of them went to their new home together. The couple had recently purchased a home together, and they were looking forward to decorating it and settling into a place of their own since they didn't live together before the wedding. Cody had taken a week off of work for a honeymoon, even though they weren't planning on going anywhere, but he wanted to use this time to settle into the new home and finally spend as much time as he could with his brand new wife. During this week off of work, Cody and Jordan were busy unpacking their home, and they also spent some time outside together. On the Sunday before Cody was due back to work the following day, he was supposed to go hang out with some friends and go golfing, but Cody called his friends up and canceled plans because he wanted to spend time with his wife. Jordan and Cody went to church that morning, and after church, they went to go spend some time at the lake, which was something that they did together often. 
Later that evening, they went back to the church to meet up with a group of friends, and then the group went to the local Dairy Queen, where they sat around eating dinner together and just hanging out until about 8.30 p.m., the following day, Monday, July 8th, Cody's boss, Cameron, who became one of his great friends, expected him to arrive at work at 6 a.m. as he always did. He was really looking forward to seeing Cody and hearing all about his wedding and the week off that he had with his wife. But when 6.30 rolled around and still no Cody, Cameron started to get really concerned. He went over to Cody and Jordan's house to look for Cody, and when nobody came to the door when he knocked, he decided to just break into the home to see if maybe the couple were hurt inside. Cameron later recalled that while he was inside the home looking around, he just had this deep gut feeling that something was off. He continued into the home looking around for any kind of signs of where the couple could be, and when he went into the garage, he found Cody's cell phone. And for Cameron, that was a really big deal because Cody always had his phone on him no matter what. Cameron started calling all of Cody's friends and family, and he learned that many people had seen him the night before, but the last time anyone had spoken to him was at 8.30 p.m., with this sinking gut feeling that something was off, nobody having seen Cody and no sign of Jordan inside the home either, Cameron went straight to the police station to make a police report. Thankfully, the police in this case didn't brush off Cameron and took his concerns seriously. Later on that evening of July 8th, Jordan finally contacts a friend after nobody had seen or heard from either her or her husband. Jordan had texted a friend asking if the friend had seen Cody. Later in the text conversation, Jordan tells the friend that Cody had left that night, but she wasn't sure who he had left with. She tells her friend that Cody had been working in the garage that evening and she walked out there to talk to him. When she realized Cody wasn't in the garage, she walked down the driveway and that is when she spotted Cody leaving in the back of a car with several other people. Jordan said that Cody then texted her and told her that he was going to go hang out with friends, but she didn't know any of these people which was unusual given the fact that she and Cody had the same group of friends, which were people who they all attended church with. But apparently, the reason why she didn't know these people was because they were from out of town. So when his friends and family heard that Cody was supposedly missing after leaving to hang out with these out-of-town friends, they all were completely confused and felt like none of this made sense. Many of his friends and family loaded up and went over to their house to see what they can do to help Jordan and to just be there for her. But when they got there, they all noticed that Jordan wasn't acting like a worried, concerned, or upset wife, which is surprising considering that this was her husband of eight days who was now considered missing. Instead of being grateful for the handful of people who showed up to be there to support her and to offer any kind of help, she instead seemed more irritated by the people being there at all. Jordan didn't offer up any kind of opinions or ideas on where Cody may have been. She didn't try and brainstorm with everyone on how to best search for him or how to spread awareness within the community. She just sat there quiet as a clam. And at one point, she gets so upset seemingly by everyone being there that she stands up and throws her wedding ring across the room. Naturally, as you can expect, everyone was completely shocked by this seemingly sudden outburst from her. As I said, the police took this case seriously right off the bat, which again is so nice considering he is an adult, and as we know from listening to other stories, this isn't always the case for adults. They're often assumed to just be blowing off steam, and they'll come back after a few days. The police began working on trying to find him, and they started with questioning all of his friends and family, including bringing Jordan in several times to question her. On June 9th, Jordan was questioned, and she had told them that after they left the Dairy Queen, while on their drive back to their house, he gets a phone call. She said she wasn't sure who called or what they said, but whatever was said, it really upset Cody. 
With how upset Cody was, she said she wanted to just give him some space to let him cool off. Not long after giving him some space at the house, she leaves the house because she realized she left her phone charger at work and she leaves to go and get it. While gone, Jordan said she got a text message from Cody saying he was going to go for a ride with some of his out-of-town buddies that were there visiting. Jordan claims that around 10 p.m. she gets back home and sees a dark-colored sedan pulling out of their driveway with Cody in the back seat. Jordan also said that she believes the plates on the car were Washington State plates. Her story was really puzzling to investigators. Cody didn't seem like the type of guy just to ditch out and run off to do whatever without communicating where he was going and what he was going to be doing. They asked Jordan if she and Cody had been fighting over anything and she denied having any kind of argument with Cody and said that everything was completely fine on that day. They asked her if Cody had been involved with any kind of drugs or anything of that nature, but she denied that and said he would never get into drugs. And all of his friends and family also agreed that Cody just wasn't that type of guy. Jordan explained to investigators that him leaving to go for rides wasn't unusual for Cody. He and many of his friends were into cars and they liked to take them out on windy roads and drive fast, but he usually came back within a few hours. They also asked her why she wasn't the one who filed her husband as missing. And she said that she assumed that he would come back and she didn't want to make the report because she didn't want Cody to get mad at her once he did get back. When investigators spoke with Cody's mom, Sherry, she also had the same worries that his boss and friend Cameron had. She felt in her gut that this wasn't going to end well and that something terrible had happened to her son. To investigators' surprise, though, when Sherry came in for her interview, she didn't come empty-handed. Cody had still been on his mother's phone plan, and she was able to obtain all of Cody's cell phone phone calls and text messages from Verizon, and she brought that in for the police to begin searching through. The first thing that they did was look for that phone call that Jordan said came through on their drive home from Dairy Queen. They did locate a call that was made to Cody fitting the timeline that Jordan had given them, and it also was a call that had a Washington State number. So again, this is looking promising because according to Jordan, she believes the car had the Washington State plates on it. Authorities were able to track down who the number belonged to, and it belonged to a guy named Jose. When they called Jose up, they asked him about the phone call and what was said. They asked if Cody was upset or if they had gotten into any kind of argument. Jose said that he had called Cody to tell him that he found his tool that he had borrowed. Apparently, Cody let Jose borrow a tool to wrench on his car, and this was something that he did often. Jose had apparently misplaced the tool but finally found it, so he was calling him to let him know he found it and that he would be returning it to him. Jose said that Cody was not upset at all and he was his normal self. Of course, just because this is what Jose said they discussed doesn't mean it was true, so they did look further into what Jose was doing on that night. And he was quickly ruled out because on that night, Jose spent his time at the hospital because his wife was having their baby. So he was ruled out as having any kind of involvement in Cody's disappearance. This brought authorities back to square one. The only real solid lead they had panned out to be absolutely nothing, but they did have some questions as to why Jordan had said that Cody was upset on the phone when the only conversation appeared he had that night was to Jose, and that conversation wouldn't be one to have set him off in any kind of way. Several searches were conducted to search all over Kalispell for Cody. They were kind of aimlessly searching because they had no solid starting point on where he could be. They searched everywhere, including huge fields, ditches, alleyways, abandoned barns, literally anywhere that they could think of, they searched it. On Wednesday, July 10th, there was still no sign of Cody, and as the days were passing, his closest friends and family were just so anxious and wanted to find him desperately. The more time that passed, the more the reality set in that Cody likely wasn't going to be coming home alive. On that day, a huge break in the case would happen. Jordan received an email from a completely random email address, and it wasn't someone she knew or was familiar with. 
She told her friend Hannah about the email and said the email came from a guy named Tony the Carman. This is what the email said. Hello, Jordan. My name is Tony. There is no bother looking for Cody anymore. He is gone. So call off the missing persons report. Cody is for sure gone. The email continued on to say that Cody had gone hiking in Glacier National Park. He fell, he was dead, and so the police can stop their search. When Jordan first told her friend Hannah about this, she was extremely calm and very nonchalant about it. She read Hannah this email like she was reading a grocery list. It was very not a big deal to her, no real emotions reading that her husband was supposedly dead at the bottom of a cliff somewhere in a huge national park. It was just not a big deal for Jordan. Hannah was completely shocked by this email and was adamant to Jordan that she needed to take this lead to the police. This is obviously a huge deal. This person is saying that Cody has died. This is something that the police urgently need to know about. And again, Jordan was very nonchalant and unconcerned. It was Hannah's urging of Jordan to go to the police that made Jordan finally cave and go down to the station with the email in hand. Jordan walks in, completely calm, not phased in the slightest to have gotten this random email saying her husband was dead. She just told the cops, hey, I got this email with zero emotions or concern, which naturally, as you can imagine, red flags are flying like crazy for authorities. So they began trying to track down who this Tony person is and where this email had come from. Jordan had told the police that Cody had worked with a guy named Tony, so maybe the email came from him. When the police brought this guy in for questioning, he had zero idea of anything to do with Cody and had told them that though he knew Cody, the two of them hung out in a group previously with their car buddies, but they didn't actually work together, nor did they really know each other that well. Tony was ultimately cleared as being the Tony from the email. Now, the process to get an IP address from emails and such can take a bit, so they didn't get that information immediately from Google because this was a Gmail account, and they had to follow certain rules and criteria in order to subpoena this information, so that takes time. Because the email said something happened to Cody in Glacier National Park, this gave everyone who was searching for him a place to really focus on where to search. But as I said, Glacier is huge, and it's not like they had any idea of which direction of the park to begin in. They did begin, though, by hanging flyers throughout the entire park and around the surrounding areas before getting into the park. They had hoped that someone had seen Cody that night out hiking with friends or whatever, and that they could pinpoint a smaller area to really focus their ground searches on. Jordan and Hannah went out to Glacier with a massive search team and began helping search for Cody. But it was very apparent to Hannah that once more, Jordan didn't seem interested in being there or helping. Hannah tried to assume that maybe Jordan was just struggling internally and was grieving in her own way. We all grieve differently, obviously, and you truly never know how you're going to react in any given situation until you're forced to be there. So Hannah was really trying to give Jordan the benefit of the doubt, but honestly, Jordan's whole entire demeanor wasn't sitting well with her. After the search was done for the night, everyone went home and came back to the park the following day, Thursday, July 11th, to begin searching again. This time, Jordan was driving into the park, and Hannah kept pointing out various different locations where there was hiking trails that she thought maybe they should stop at to check out and search. But Jordan didn't want to stop. She just kept driving further into the park and seemed like there was a specific area that she really wanted to go to to search. Everyone that was in the car just decided to let Jordan take the lead and go where she felt was best to search for her husband. She drove down a very narrow, windy road called Going to the Sun Road, which is 30 miles long and leads to the top of the mountain. Once at the top, there is a parking area for tourists, and she pulls in there, gets out, and tells everyone that this was a special spot for herself and Cody and was a place that they went to a lot. 
Across the way from the parking lot is a trail that goes along a deep ravine and is a very tricky and dangerous hike. After you go through this area, you are then forced to climb over some rocks to get to a cliffside. Now, within Glacier, there are tons of barriers, fencing, and guardrails to keep hikers on specific trails and to not allow them to adventure too close to dangerous areas. Obviously, people can get over these guardrails and frequently do so, but they are there in place for safety measures. So Jordan leads their search party down this trail, and when you get to this area where you can but shouldn't hop over the guardrail, she does. The group all stands watching Jordan as she maneuvers over to this cliff area, and they watch her bend down, pick a rock up, and throw it over the edge. She then looks down over the edge to see where her rock went, and she immediately says, I think he's down there. This took everyone, of course, by surprise, and they were standing there stunned and in shock. Jordan looks back over the edge again and says, oh my gosh, it's him. Jordan's brother Michael then climbed over the wall and looked down there, and he could see that something was down there for sure, but he wasn't sure exactly what it was. This area where it appeared that Cody was, wasn't an area that you can just hike down and explore. This was a huge drop that was not accessible at all. When Jordan's brother Michael looked over, he instantly began crying because it did appear that there was a body or something down there. And this just put him into complete shock. He was so stunned and upset that he was barely able to make it back to the car because he was just physically ill over it all. Jordan, on the other hand, was once more cool as a cucumber. She didn't seem phased or bother that one, she air quotes, stumbled upon what she believes to be her dead husband of not even a month. And two, she doesn't seem phased by the fact that they can't even get down there to see if it is him or not. I don't know about y'all, but I would have had the same reaction as the brother did and literally would have crumpled to the ground in hysterics if I thought I just found my husband dead at the bottom of a huge ravine. Jordan and one of her friends went back to the car while the other stayed behind on the trail and they drove 20 miles to a lodge where they could report the body to park rangers. When park rangers responded to the scene, it was obvious that this was going to be a very serious recovery mission and not something that would be done quickly. So they planned with authorities to come back out the following day on July 12th to begin the process of trying to recover what appeared to be Cody's body. They were able to confirm that it appeared that down below in that ravine was a blue tennis shoe, which Cody had been wearing the day he went missing. Because of the treacherous train that law enforcement and other governing officials were going to have to endure to recover the body, if it was a body at all, they needed to make sure for certain that it was a body before they busted out all of their resources that they were going to need to get it. An FBI agent who came on scene volunteered to rappel down lower for a better view to positively say one way or the other. This agent got down far enough, leaned back, and positively confirmed that there was a male body lying at the bottom in a small pool of water. So not only was this going to be an incredibly hard recovery of Cody's body, but it was also going to be extremely hard to get the proper officials down into this area in order for them to collect any kind of evidence. But they did what they needed to do, and they got the people in this area that park rangers believed that no man had ever been before. And they found Cody's body in a small body of water, which was actually located at the base of a small waterfall. As you can imagine, Cody's body was in bad shape. His head and arms had sustained the most damage from that 200-foot fall. The coroner was able to positively identify that it was Cody immediately because he had his wallet on him with his identification. Authorities were able to secure Cody into a body bag, but there was absolutely no possible way to carry him out, so a helicopter was brought in to airlift him out. 
A 200-foot line was dropped from the helicopter in order to be able to get him out. When the friends and family got the news that it was Cody, they all were completely devastated. It was hard for them to fathom that just a couple weeks prior, they were all surrounded around Cody, whom they loved so much, celebrating this next chapter in his life. It goes to show that truly anything could happen in the blink of an eye and never to take your loved ones for granted. Authorities now were trying to start back over and figure out how it was that Cody ended up at the bottom of this ravine. They went back and re-interviewed all of his friends and his family, and what they found out during this second interview process was that Cody was actually afraid of heights. So instantly, this is a light bulb going off in their heads that this doesn't make sense that Cody would put himself in a position to be so close to a cliff where he could potentially fall. Some of his friends were even so shocked to hear that this was how Cody died that they felt that whatever happened to Cody, he had to have been lured to this area. At this point in the investigation, things were at a little bit of a standstill because they were still waiting on the phone records from Jordan and Cody's cell phones, as well as the records from Google about the IP address for that Tony the Car Guy email. But they felt strongly that whoever sent this email was going to lead them to some answers because of the fact that Tony the car guy knew that Cody was in Glacier. It was just a matter of waiting for those official documents to come through. And again, it's not like what they show on those dramatic TV shows. To subpoena paperwork like that, it can take some serious time. Authorities were surprised, however, when they got an unexpected visit from Kimberly Martinez, which let me remind you that was the matron of honor who stood beside Jordan on her wedding day. She told authorities that Jordan didn't want to marry Cody, and this was something that completely took investigators by surprise because they hadn't heard this from anyone else. From everything they learned about Jordan and their relationship, she seemed for the most part to be a happy bride despite some of her odd behaviors after he went missing. But Kimberly told them that Jordan was dreading marrying Cody and that she was having serious doubts leading up to the big day, but especially on the actual wedding day. And a lot of these feelings stemmed around the fact that Jordan was not interested whatsoever in having any kind of sexual relations with Cody. Apparently, the idea of sex or anything sexual in nature was not something Jordan wanted to participate in, and it actually revolted her to think about it. She felt like she was going to be pressured and expected to do something on her wedding night. Kimberly repeatedly asked Jordan if this was the right move. Should she truly be marrying Cody if she was filled with so much doubt and dread? Jordan had told Kimberly that she and Cody did not have sex on their wedding night and that she had told him that she was on her period. And she continued to tell him that the week after their wedding as well. Jordan had texted Kimberly the day after the wedding and said, quote, I haven't stopped crying since I was married. I wish someone had stood up and asked me what I wanted, but I can't go back and change anything. I should be happy and I'm just not. I don't feel like myself, end quote. Jordan would send another text to Kimberly saying, I totally just had a meltdown. I'm completely second guessing everything right now. Kimberly told her friend that she really needed to talk to Cody and explain to him how she was feeling, which Jordan didn't want to do that at all because she was scared it would break his heart. Two days before Cody went missing on July 5th, Kimberly got another text message that read, He held me down the other night and was in my face. He gets a temper fast. She told Kimberly that Cody had tried to hold her down. She got away and he scratched her. But whenever they were at that Dairy Queen for dinner that night with their friends, everything seemed completely normal. They didn't seem off or like they had been fighting. So this was a shocking thing to hear. On July 7th, Kim received another text from Jordan that said, quote, Tonight's the night I'm going to tell Cody the truth about how I feel about all of this. End quote. Later that night, Jordan showed up at Kim's house and told her that she had talked to Cody and he got extremely angry and completely freaked out on her. She said that she decided to leave and give Cody space so he could cool off. From there, she said she went over to her mom and stepfather's house to hang out and spend time with them. 
With this new information, it was clear that Jordan had multiple stories to tell to different people. Once more, they went and questioned Jordan and began asking her how she knew exactly where to begin searching for Cody on the day he was found. She said the area was a place that was on Cody's bucket list that he wanted to see before he died, which is a little eerie for her to say considering he died at that very spot. She also said that she had gotten a feeling from God that led her to that area and reminded her that that was a place on his bucket list. This new tidbit of information was obviously weird to investigators and they felt like once more Jordan wasn't being truthful and that she likely knew he was there all along. Finally, they were able to get access to that IP address that had sent that email. And lo and behold, that email came from a computer located at Jordan's mom's and stepfather's house. On the very day that that email was sent to Jordan, that Tony the Car Guy email address was created. So clearly it was created to send this email and the sender was attempting to get the search to stop. But obviously, whoever sent this was dumb and didn't know how investigations work. Jordan's mom, stepfather, and brother Michael was brought in for questioning, all of which denied having written this email, which leaves only one individual left who had access to that computer, and that was Jordan Graham. Then the cell phone records came in for both her phone and Cody's, and it turns out that both of their phones had been inside Glacier Park on that night that Cody went missing. They were also able to determine that the couple had entered the park at 9.17 p.m. They also learned that at the entrance of Glacier National Park, there is a camera that captures a picture of every single car that enters. And when they obtained the photo of their car pulling into the park, you can see that both Jordan and Cody were inside. With the cell phone evidence, the photo from the park, and the email coming from Jordan's family's house, it was evident that everything Jordan had told authorities leading up to this point was complete and utter BS. And she had a lot of questions that needed to be answered once more. On July 16th, they bring Jordan back in for questioning, and they asked her once again, go ahead and start at the beginning on what happened that day. She begins, as she always did, talking about seeing him leaving with friends in the back of a sedan. At this point, they knew that she was going to continue with her lies, so they went ahead, stopped her, and busted out the photo of Cody and her riding into Glacier National Park on July 7th at 9.17 p.m. When she saw this picture, she instantly started to cry, and she knew at this point that she had to come clean. She said that night after their dinner at Dairy Queen, she told Cody that she wasn't happy being married to him. This set Cody off. Obviously, he was upset, confused, hurt, and everything in between. According to Jordan, they began arguing and yelling, and then they decided just to take a break from their disagreement and go to Glacier National Park. They drove up the way to the parking lot and took the trail where they then climbed over the railing and rocks to get to that cliff spot. Jordan claims that once they get there to this lookout spot, they begin arguing again. And at some point, Cody gets physical and she turns to walk away and he forcefully grabs onto her arm and pulls This upset Jordan and she yanks her arm away and apparently she thought to herself she wasn't going to let this happen to herself and that she was going to stand her ground and defend herself. So she pushed Cody over that 200 foot drop and ran back to the car and went home. She was adamant to police that this was a complete accident and that she didn't mean to actually shove him over the edge. She just wanted to defend herself since he was getting physical with her and she was scared of him. Jordan also admitted in this interview that she, in fact, was the Tony person who wrote the email saying to stop looking for Cody. Even though Jordan confessed to killing Cody, they let her go because they still had some work to do in order to make sure that they got a conviction. And I get that is frustrating, but they did want to make sure they had all of their ducks in a row before arresting her and charging her with murder. 
On July 22nd, they had Cody's funeral. And at this point in time, the friends and family of Cody really didn't have any kind of idea on what Jordan confessed to, nor did they know what authorities knew. And Jordan went to his funeral. Once more, Jordan did not show any kind of emotion. She was cold, didn't act sad, didn't shed a single tear. And not only that, but the whole entire time during his funeral, she was there sitting, texting on her phone. Anyone who witnessed this was completely turned off by her actions and lack of emotions. And all of them felt at that point in time that she was completely involved in his death. Now, I don't know exactly why it took investigators so long or what they were doing, but Jordan wasn't arrested for his murder until September. September 9th, 2013, Jordan was arrested for second-degree murder and for making false statements to authorities. When the news learned of an arrest, this story went national. People became so interested and so invested in this case because here you have a seemingly normal 22-year-old woman who was a newlywed bride of just eight days before her husband went missing, and then to have her be arrested for his murder just set the world on fire. To the shock of all of Cody's friends and family, a judge found that Jordan wasn't a risk to the community. So instead of holding her in jail until her trial, she was released with an ankle monitor to live under house arrest at her parents' home. In October, she was indicted on first and second degree murder charges and a jury added the charge of a premeditated first degree murder. If found guilty of premeditated first-degree murder, Jordan was looking at a minimum sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. In December of 2013, Jordan's trial finally began. She did not testify at all in her defense, which honestly is probably a good thing because the prosecution would have torn her a new one over all of those lies she told. She sat there stone cold as normal with zero emotions. Now, Jordan's attorney did not try and say that she didn't do this crime at all because it was proven that she was there. Instead, he claimed that she did so in self-defense. But one of the attorney's trickier tasks was to try and explain the reasoning for Jordan's continuous lies when she knew that her husband was dead at the bottom of that ravine. The defense claimed that Jordan didn't speak up out of fear of how everyone would react and that nobody would believe her. She was this shy and quiet introverted girl married to a very well-liked person who everyone saw the good in. She didn't think anyone would believe that he had a mean bone in his body or believe that she felt the need to defend herself. The prosecution brought in many witnesses that were both of their friends to attest to their odd and unusual relationship, including witnesses who knew that Jordan didn't want to marry Cody. It also came out in the trial that when Cody had canceled his plans to go golfing with his friends on that day he went missing, it was because he told them that Jordan had a surprise for him. Most of his friends assumed that finally Jordan was going to be intimate and sexual with her husband, and Cody seemed to be under that impression too. The prosecution argued that Jordan led Cody there by promising him to do something sexual out there and that this was completely premeditated murder. One thing that almost seems plausible with this theory is that when they recovered Cody's body, near where his body was found was this long piece of cloth. And Jordan at one point had said something about Cody putting on an eye mask or a blindfold, and he had apparently was saying that he could wear this eye mask and walk around because he was so familiar with the area and wouldn't fall off. I don't really know... But to bring that up and say he was doing that at some point and then to find what appeared to be some sort of blindfold near his body at the bottom of the ravine seems almost like maybe she led him to this area blindfolded with this promised surprise of something sexual and then pushed him off. Also in court, the prosecution played all of the videos of where Jordan was interviewed and her telling various different stories, including the clip where she finally admits that she pushed Cody. On December 12, 2013, amidst the middle of her trial, Jordan shocked everyone when she finally agreed to take a plea deal and she pled guilty to the lesser charge of second degree murder. In exchange for her plea, she was given a 30 year sentence. 
Despite this guilty plea, she did continue to say that it was an accident and it was self-defense, and she just wasn't thinking about their surroundings and that it was all just a huge mistake. Then, once more, Jordan shocked everyone when she changed her mind about this plea, and at this point, it was up to the judge to decide whether to keep her plea or move forward with a new trial. The judge thankfully decided against the new trial, and she was sentenced to spend those 30 years behind bars without the possibility of parole. Cody's family was really disappointed by this outcome. They were hopeful that Jordan would never be allowed out of prison, but instead Jordan will be able to be released when she is 52 years old. Over the years since her sentence, Jordan has tried to appeal her sentence many times, and she was denied every single time. In 2016, her final appeal was rejected, and Jordan will remain behind bars for her full 30-year sentence. All in all, this story is very heartbreaking. Cody seemed like an incredible person and his life was completely cut short. He believed he was about to embark on a new phase of his life with the woman he had just married eight days prior. Nobody would have expected that he would end up dead. Jordan had all of the opportunities to cancel or call off the wedding. She could have told him after the fact that she really made a mistake, but instead she took his life. One quote that I saw people talking about was the fact that Jordan was so concerned about breaking Cody's heart and telling him how she really felt, but she clearly wasn't concerned about completely stopping his heart altogether. I do hope that her 30 years in prison is long and miserable for her because I do think she's a terrible person. She will someday see the outside world again, but Cody doesn't get that luxury. Crimeaholics, as I said earlier, make sure you are in our private Facebook group. I will be sharing pictures pertaining to this case, and you can find it by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram and on TikTok at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you wish to follow me personally, you can find me on Instagram at crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for now. Until next time, be aware and take care. (music) 